Welcome to Dictatorum, episode 1.2, Young Gaddafi. In our first episode, we took a look at the geography and history of Libya. This week, we'll continue our journey by introducing the man of the hour, Muammar Gaddafi. Before I get too far into the narrative, I want to clear something up about the spelling of Gaddafi's name. Due to the lack of standardization when it comes to transliterating Arabic words into English, there's a number of ways that we can render Gaddafi. A Google search on the spelling of his name turns up more than 100 different varieties, like no kidding. Sometimes they start with G, sometimes they start with Q, sometimes with K. I've chosen one spelling, while someone who actually speaks Arabic, which I don't, might choose to spell it differently. At the end of the day, as long as we can agree that there's no correct way to spell his name in English, and that I'm doing my best to pronounce his name somewhat correctly, we can all get along. Moving on. Muammar Muhammad Abu Minyar Gaddafi was born in the village of Qasr Abu Hadi near the city of Sirte on Libya's central coast in the early 1940s. Although the exact date of his birth is unknown, officially his birthday is recognized as 7 July 1942, and he might have been born as early as 1940. His parents were goat and camel herders, which is to say, dirt poor, and although largely illiterate themselves, they wanted the young boy to have an education. He got some basic education about the Quran from a local religious teacher, and then he started primary school in Sirte in 1954. Because his family was so poor and couldn't pay for lodgings, young Muammar slept in a mosque and walked home every weekend, a journey of around 30 kilometers. Also, because he wasn't from the city, but a Bedouin, that being a desert-dwelling nomadic Arab, he faced endless scrutiny from other pupils. It didn't seem to faze him, however, and he was known as a standout student. A couple years later, his family moved to the desert city of Saba in Fezzan, where his father found work as the caretaker for a local tribal leader. Muammar continued his schooling while in Saba at a school staffed by Egyptian teachers who had access to newspapers and radio broadcasts from outside Libya. This meant that Gaddafi could listen in on the speeches of the new Egyptian leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who quickly became his hearer. Nasser was a huge proponent of Arab nationalism and was staunchly anti-colonialist. Nasser believed that Arabs could unite, and he even helped set up the United Arab Republic, which was a political union between Egypt and Syria between 1958 and 1961. Gaddafi would listen to Nasser's speeches on repeat and even memorize them to recite to his schoolmates. He lectured to his friends so often that they began to carry around a stool for him to stand on, just in case he broke out into a speech. In 1961, Gaddafi took part in a demonstration to protest Syria's secession from Nasser's United Arab Republic. He and his buddies broke the windows out of a hotel which was rumored to be serving alcohol. The affair got Gaddafi kicked out of school in Saba. Not to be deterred, Gaddafi managed to land a seat in a high school in the coastal city of Misrata. After independence, Libya's King Idris methodically dismantled all opposition political parties. In 1952, he outlawed the Tripoli-based National Congress, which was snubbed in that year's parliamentary elections, which he was expecting to win. You see, Idris was an old-school leader. He ran Libya more like a tribe than a modern state, using patronage networks to create a virtual oligarchy rather than foster political freedom in the wake of independence. This system, although not truly official, and which sidestepped the painstakingly written Libyan constitution, was quite similar to the tribal structure which existed in Cyrenaica before independence. Tribes have been the foundation of Arab life since prehistory, and post-independence Libya would be no different. Through cash payments from Libya's meager resource base, 
and appointments to important government positions, Idris's oligarchy would be the true manifestation of the state, much to the dismay of those Libyans who yearned for true political freedom. All other political parties in the country would soon find themselves banned. Idris's patriotist network would dictate the way that decisions were made in Libya. This would provide fuel for the fire that Gaddafi planned to ignite, seemingly starting in his early years at school. While Gaddafi was at school in Sabah, he had begun to canvass his friends and acquaintances for like-minded young men to join a revolutionary society. Their goal? Expel the Western powers, replace the corrupt monarchy, and unite Arabs across the board. Gaddafi began to organize his recruits into cells. He was specifically looking for young men who were fans of Nasser's philosophy of Arab unity, nationalism, and socialism. After his expulsion from the school in Saba and Misrata, he continued his recruitment efforts and expanded them to nearby cities and towns. By the time Gaddafi graduated in 1963, he had cells in Misrata, Tripoli, Chanzur, Zliten, and Homs. The men were sworn to secrecy and to Gaddafi's strict discipline. They were not to drink, gamble, or chase women. Those are things that Westerners did. How could they kick the hated Westerners out of Libya if they themselves were no better than the hated foreigners? That same year, 1963, Gaddafi showed that he was still taking his cues from Nasser, a former Egyptian army colonel, and he joined the Libyan army and attended the Libyan Royal Military Academy in Benghazi. He became a member of the Signals Corps. You see, the army was one of the only ways that a poor Bedouin could hope for upward social mobility. According to one documentary, Gaddafi was a pretty terrible soldier, but we've already seen that he was the epitome of charisma. He was joined by several of his friends from Misrata, several of whom joined on Gaddafi's direct orders. Abdel Salam Jaloud and Omar al-Maheshi were among them. These men would hold powerful roles in post-coup Libya for years to come. About the time he joined the army, Gaddafi and his band of followers gave themselves a name, the Free Unionist Officers Movement. They held their first meeting on a beach in Cyrenaica in 1964. A central committee was set up, with Gaddafi naturally at its center. Just like he forced the friends to join the army with him, as it was the natural place one would go if they eventually wanted to control power, Gaddafi started imposing his will on the other Free Unionist Officers Movement members. They were charged with buying a car, which was out of the economic realm of possibility for most of the poor cadets. Still, Gaddafi would get his way. These men needed to be mobile so they could canvass the country looking for Nasserite officers and to attend FUOM meetings. These meetings were often held in Bedouin tents or out in the desert under the stars during long weekends or holidays. The group must have secrecy and security. Most of the new recruits were themselves officers in the army, and the army would provide the gateway for the revolution, in Gaddafi's words. In 1966, Lieutenant Gaddafi was sent to Britain for training at Sandhurst, if you're to believe Gaddafi. For those of you who haven't heard of Sandhurst, it's Britain's premier military academy, and therefore one of the most elite in the world. I mean, Winston Churchill and both Princes William and Prince Harry are alumni. Being trained at one of the world's most elite military schools would give Gaddafi's military credentials a huge boost. Sandhurst, however, denies Gaddafi ever attended at all. Instead, the British Army lists him as having studied the Army School of Education at Wilton Park in Beaconsfield, which is just outside of London. In any case, while he was in training, he was reportedly quite stubborn with his instructors and he refused to learn English. He'd make trips into London and instead of getting into the idea of swinging London from the 1960s, he was instead disgusted by this culture. He eventually took up wearing traditional Arab clothing in downtown London, 
which would not get anyone to bat an eyelash today, but at the time was unheard of. Nevertheless, while in the UK, Gaddafi would learn invaluable skills in military communications and intelligence that would serve him well when the time came. During his time at the Libyan Royal Military Academy, Gaddafi's stubborn nature got him in trouble several times. One account has him being punished for insubordination by being forced to crawl across a bed of gravel on his hands and knees carrying a backpack filled with sand in the middle of a hot day. Gaddafi's superiors were not the only ones dishing out punishment, though. According to one British officer at the academy in Benghazi, Gaddafi was partly responsible for the torture and murder of a cadet accused of some kind of sexual offense, possibly homosexuality. Meanwhile, the RCC instructed the cadets and young military officers in its rank to start collecting weapons and ammunition to be used in the eventual coup against the government. But the government was suspicious of some of the RCC members, and the aunt of one of the revolutionaries was forced to ditch some of this ammunition into a sewer when the authorities came looking for her nephew. In 1967, the Six-Day War broke out between Israel and a handful of powerful Arab armies, with indirect support from other Arab countries who didn't participate themselves. King Idris was wary of officially entering the war against the allies of his two main benefactors, the British and Americans. Idris did allow the formations of an expeditionary battalion to allow volunteers to join the fight. Gaddafi, of course, volunteered to join. Of course he would. This expedition would be supporting Arabs against people whom he saw as outsiders and foreign invaders, the Israelis. But the short duration of the war and the Arab nation's total defeat meant that Gaddafi didn't get anywhere close to the fighting. He saw King Idris's lack of commitment to the conflict as a betrayal against the cause of Arab unity and the destruction of Israel. He blamed not only Idris, but also the British and Americans, whom he claimed fought on the Israeli side. This bitterness would leave him determined to hurt the Brits and Yanks as soon as he had the chance. He wasn't alone, though. In the wake of the Six-Day War, American business interests in major cities were destroyed in mob violence, and the American Information Office in Benghazi was ransacked. 6,000 American civilians were also evacuated from the country. You might expect a similar reaction at British bases in the country, but most of these were closed by 1966. The toll was far worse for the Jews who remained in Libya. Jews had lived in Libya since the time of Ptolemy I in the 300s BC, and their population had reached approximately 40,000 by the end of World War II. But in response to the creation of the Jewish state of Israel, Arab-Jewish relations in Libya broke down, and the Jews suffered several pogroms. By 1967, the Jewish population in Libya was one-tenth of what it was just 22 years earlier. In response to the Arab defeat during the Six-Day War, 18 Jews were killed in mass violence in Tripoli. The Italian ambassador to Libya opened all Italian diplomatic missions in the country to Jews, and within a few months, most of the remaining Jews fled to either Israel or Italy. Just a couple months after the end of the Six-Day War, King Idris attended a summit of Arab states where several of them agreed to provide generous subsidies to the defeated Arab countries. Idris himself broached the idea of raising oil prices on the global market in retaliation for the conflict. This idea would be revived when Gaddafi himself would use the same tactic to help start an oil crisis in 1973. It was a bit out of character for King Idris to make such a bold step. He was, by his own admission, more interested in his relationship with Allah than ruling Libya. Not to mention the fact that Libyan domestic politics were somewhat chaotic and susceptible to influence from external factors. Since independence, they were on their ninth prime minister. They would go through two more before Gaddafi's coup just a couple of years down the line. Having a king who is mostly checked out and such a revolving door at the prime minister's office does not a stable country make. 
Plus, the presence of Western military bases in Libya provided an easy target for Egyptian propaganda both during the Suez Crisis and the Six-Day War. The mob violence which resulted caused the downfall of more than one prime minister. Another weak point which Gaddafi would later exploit was the matter of succession. A smooth transition between rulers is one of the hallmarks of a successful country and nation, and a sign of a healthy political system. It's also fraught with danger, especially a nation whose stability is questionable. Remember, until recently, Libya was the poorest nation on earth. At this time, it's still divided along tribal and regional lines, and the failure of Arab states to defeat Israel in the 1967 war had opened a bleeding sore felt throughout the Arab world. Plus, Libya's powerful neighbor Egypt had been taken over by an anti-monarchist, pro-Arab nationalist strongman. Needless to say, any transition of power would be difficult. Unfortunately for Libya, King Idris just didn't have a viable succession plan. The initial plan was a hereditary succession, and was written in the Libyan constitution. But Idris's lack of a son made this difficult, even after taking a second wife in the 1950s. It took a number of years for King Idris to finally appoint someone, and he chose his nephew Hassan al-Sanusi. But even after this appointment, Idris did little to prepare the man for the realities of governing. By the mid-1960s, Hassan's only real claims to any role in governance of Libya were a handful of trips abroad on official business, such as negotiating for the sale of American fighter aircraft to Libya. By early 1969, Gaddafi and his cadre of military men in the Free Unionist Officers Movement felt the time was right for their attempt to grab power. They set a date for 12 March 1969. But why do we call Gaddafi's coup the September coup? Because their coup plan for March fell apart, of course. It turns out that the night for the planned coup coincided with a benefit concert for the Palestinians. Singing at the concert was Egyptian Um Kalthum, who was the Air World's most famous female singer. Most of Libya's top brass would be at the concert, as would throngs of people. So showing up armed to arrest the creme de la creme of the Libyan government wouldn't do any favors for the coup plotters, who would eventually have to rule Libya after having just thrown all the popular people in jail. So they called it off. Good play, Gaddafi. They set a new day for 24 March, but the military authorities got wind that something was up and whisked Idris away to Tobruk, where there was a small British garrison. Since their plan counted on Idris being in Tripoli, the RCC once again had to call things off. As the military found out something was afoot, Gaddafi ordered that they go underground for a while until things cooled off. In August, Idris and his wife traveled to Greece for some vacation time and then on to Turkey for some medical treatment. The 80-year-old king was feeling his age by this point, having suffered from sciatica and rheumatism for quite some time. Prior to his departure, the king allegedly penned an abdication letter to become effective on 2 September 1969, placing Hassan in charge. Although the letter was supposed to be kept under wraps, it was an open secret that Idris planned to abdicate. Gaddafi and his fellow conspirators had to act before Hassan could take the throne. The lackeys of the imperialist West had to fall, and the new rulers who would stand for the Arab state of Libya had to take their place. Next time, we'll take a look at the 1 September coup and the manner in which Muammar Gaddafi would seize power in the Arab world's most fragile democracy.